This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're tuned in to The Property Show, our weekly take on all things property-related, and I'm Philip C. On today's Property Show, I have with me Ronald Lim, co-chief editor of the Singapore Architect Magazine and honorary secretary of the Royal Institute of British Architects, Singapore chapter, as well as a practicing architect, as we ask him about how the architecture profession has evolved. Ron, I'll start with a very basic one, like 101 Idiot's Guide. What does an architect do? You know, because we get so confused over the distinctions, right, between architect, designer, and engineer and such. Yeah, thanks for... Thanks for- very much for asking this question uh, because uh, you know most of us just think you know the architect is the guy who designs my building uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's tied to the word architecture but actually um, it's kind of important to recognize that there's kind of quite a clear line differentiating between architecture the intellectual the artistic uh, and intellectual endeavor and the profession the architect so which uh, in many ways is uh, in most commonwealth jurisdictions are governed by an architect's act. So in a way, the design part is only not more than 10 or 15% of everything that an architect does mm. because the architect really has to guide the, the owner through a whole series, the very broad range of things that happens uh, across the building enterprise, whether they are the ones fronting the entire team of professionals, your structural engineers, your quantity surveyors, your facade consultants, right down to managing things like cost, right down to advising uh, what the owner needs to do, uh, what's the kind of contract or procurement framework the owner needs to get a building constructed. And even across the construction exercise itself, there are a whole series of tensions and uh, conflicts that the architect has to resolve in accordance with the contract. So in a way, you know, the architect is both a designer, someone who has a vision, a big picture vision and that kind of thing, but also a conductor of an orchestra. But a way to look at it is that the architect is the client's trusted advisor and overseer. So an, advice, an advisor role, okay. I wonder how the profession has evolved in the past decade, you know, we've talked about the role of design and how, you know, sometimes as a trusted advisor, they play that critical role of providing the bigger picture vision, the narrative and the intention right up front. How has that role though evolved in the past decade? I mean, of course, okay, so I need to pretext myself here because um, trusted advisor is an aspiration. Hmm. Architects get to work in the capacity of a trusted advisor, right? Sometimes the client is very sure what they want and they really commoditize the scope exactly of what they want the architect to do. Uh, in a fairly downstream way. So the architect yeah. just has to do what the client asks for. But I think one trend that we have seen over time is that in the past, um, there was this focus on the on the architect as the kind of master builder. You know, you tell the architect, I want a building. The architect sort of designed it and just said, like, this, this is the form of the building. And, and I got everything to work to get this building built the way uh, I originally intended. I think right now, over as time passes and as uh, society and economy becomes more complex, uh, we see the need for an architect to be a, a lot more agile. So they've been much more willing to step into lateral areas or or lateral zones and um, not be a kind of top-down kind of leader, but to sort of like work out solutions in a much more consultative way. Bottom-up way and engagement, stakeholder-driven. Right. So we we talk about this trend towards uh, co-working spaces or even corporate uh, headquarters need uh, one certain types of co-working spaces. But actually the thinking behind that uh, that relies on an architect's skill set is just something as simple as getting the right balance between uh, the right numbers of individual tables 
the right numbers of uh, co-working cafe kind of seating to meeting rooms that range from four to 10 persons and like soft seating and calibrating that right so that everyone uses everything much more so that overall you use less space and that results in a client wanting to rent less space. So I think in a way, um, the, the definition of design problem is such that architects can still apply the skill set, but they need to be much more consultative. They need to be responsive to evidence and very often they need to listen to other points of view before they exercise their aesthetic judgment. Yeah, so this is where I'm struggling to understand because sometimes what is the role of the architect? You have the pressure point of needing to listen to what the client wants. At the same time, that sometimes may not reconcile with the changing, evolving society that we live in, right? So sometimes I do feel that the architect does mirror society, mirrors the changing pulse of how society is evolving and moving on themes like ageing, inclusiveness. How do you kind of reconcile the need to meet client demands versus perhaps addressing frontier issues? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not an easy question. An architect designs a pretty ugly building that's been busted by the public. The architect himself knows uh, yeah. that, you know, that wasn't, there was a, a source of pain uh, and that he couldn't do it and that he had to do what the client wanted. Uh, it, it's uh, it's really not an, an easy question to answer, but ultimately, the, the important thing to recognize is that there are different types of clients. So, you know, when we say the client, we, we, we assume as though there's one type of client or one clients in general have done this or that or clients are becoming much more uh, sort of demanding. But actually, um, clients come in many shapes and sizes, uh, ambitions and mandates, right? A home client wants his dream home with the right kinds of spaces. But if you're working for a state kind of client, then um, decision-making uh, is much more percolated, much more systematic through the various rounds of decision-making uh, before sign-off happens to facing a different kind of like client by committee. So I think ultimately what the architect can accomplish, unfortunately, both fortunately and unfortunately, is really within the scope of what the client's ambitions are. But that's it, you know, all good all good architecture begins with the client. So, uh, and the clients are very often the best collaborators uh, of an architect and that when uh, there's a very positive dynamic, you know, and sometimes that involves a client trusting the architect and taking risks with decisions so that an architect can comes up with, come up with something that hopefully really exceeds what the client thought the architect would do, then that dynamic is a very positive one. No different from you working with your boss, right? Your yeah, boss yeah, absolutely. Do something else. But of course, if, if your boss tells you very specifically that I want your job scope to be this and you're just to do this and this is the way I thought about it then of course the architect has no choice to but to really follow the, the script in that way that's, that's a very key tension uh, but I think overall we are looking at an environment where um, expectations are much higher a lot of demands are, are, are being placed and architects are especially for institutional and commercial clients are in a position where they can't just propose something but they often have to defend the decision and there's a lot more further rounds of justification for why something is being done I'm not sure if it's a a good or not good thing. It just is the way it is. I guess this is one of the things that I, I just build on the thought you just said, right? That the mm. key to any good project requires trust, that you need to build trust between the mm. client and the architect. Mm. It, how has that evolved in the past five, six years? Because with democra democratization of information, with so much out there available in terms of good design, in terms of good architecture, or perhaps they, they've sought out external information to define for them what good architecture is. Do you see that trust gap widening or narrowing between the client and the architect? It's, it's very hard to speak in generalities, but I think ultimately, ultimately the fact that clients are becoming better informed or find their own research, uh, finding their own research to place uh, expectations on what their own projects could become, uh, ultimately is a, is a good thing that makes architects' jobs a lot harder. But of course, you know, there's the classic, there's a classic adage of like Frank Gehry 
did not liking clients wanting to hire him to reproduce another Frank Gehry mm. that uh, people already knew, knew because he as a creative wants to further revolve and move on. So uh, I think one, one of the best sort of descriptors of that dynamic that I really like and I, I actually go by is that, uh, and it was uh, an architect once mentioned to me that we always like clients to have a good sense of who they are, meaning that they when they understand themselves and who they are and how they are different, then us as architects, you know, uh, we coming from the world where we know space, we know form, we know space planning and things like that can architecturalize the vision by listening to them, meaning we give it form and shape. So it's very different from a client telling you, I, I like that shape because it looks like a boat sail and then uh, you know I want your uh, house to look like uh, a ship, you know, and that is just so inspiring, right? Because a lot of what makes architecture is that the ambiguity, the multiple multiplicity of meaning and the form that can be read multiple ways has been studied so many times that works against the plan and everything else. It's, it's so much an intellectual exercise. It's not so simple a matter to say, oh, that, that, that building looks like a boat, right? But yeah. I'm just trying to explain that there's a very fine differentiation uh, between expectation and what they want. Sometimes it's it helps the architect if the client has a visual and aesthetic taste and really knows what they want. But it's also okay if the client understands themselves or what they, what bigger things they want to accomplish. The architect through design and design dialogue with clients goes can accomplish that. So form and space, the interpretation, the intellectual <coughs> understanding, the intention of that form and space is very critical in how the architect interprets that intention. I wonder, you know, in this world where we are having so many debates and conversations about the climate crisis we're going through. I mean, we are now in the midst of a heat wave in Europe. How does that form and shape change in response to these seismic global issues like climate? It's not really just a form and shape, you know, just the fact that you're constructing already is uh, quite a, a major issue. In Singapore, uh, we realise that actually buildings contribute about 20% to our total carbon emissions. Give you a sense of what what the, the real figures are. A 40-storey building in either Singapore or Lumpur can actually Actually, in the process of constructing the 40-story building, because concrete is a embodied carbon kind of exercise, right? You are actually using as much carbon that can be sequestered by 10,000 hectares of stone. Wow. Yes. That's a lot. You know, in a way, you know, today, today we are already past one generation on of a kind of normalization of what we call energy efficient buildings, right? In the US, there's this LEED AP certification system. In Singapore, it's called Green Mark. In, the, in Malaysia, it's called Green Building Index. It takes a very checklist method of saying, oh, I use low efficient fittings, I use this, I use that, yeah, to cover the whole gamut so that I achieve X number of points and then I, I accomplish uh, platinum, which I think as a base requirement is not a bad thing. But actually the entire paradigm needs to shift in a way because, and, and, and the conversations are starting to happen in that we we are in, in urbanizing environments, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, we are often tearing down buildings before their life cycle uh, to build more intensely. Um, this is a byproduct of uh, increasing land use, a byproduct of economic development potential. But what happens when you're tearing down the buildings before the life cycle is that a lot of this carbon is just gone, right? And then we are consuming a lot more carbon in the entire exercise to rebuild uh, everything. So again, the paradigm needs to uh, start shifting to us uh, wanting to build less or saying that you've got an existing stock of maybe ugly buildings or unattractive buildings that are there. Uh, we don't really need to demolish them. Mm. That can make very subtle interventions on lower cost. You consume a lot less resources to make to unlock further value out of them and allow people to use them and, and to have a longer life. But I got to say, what you're, what you're proposing would not be well-liked by many of your fellow colleagues, isn't it? Because you're really talking about repurposing existing as opposed to reimagining new spaces or even constructing from top, isn't it? That's not a very popular opinion among your fellow colleagues. Oh, in fact, you are reimagining new spaces. You're reimagining new spaces.
spaces on the substrates of these buildings. Of course, what you what it means between a kind of economic sort of like business formula where your things mm. are construction to one where your value add is really your reimagining of that space, but that the legacy business model is still percent of construction. Obviously, percent of construction would not hold already because you're offering a lot. Absolutely. Same, the fee model will change. Uh, uh, mental energy for, you know, reconceiving. But it's really the paradigm elsewhere. That's why we're talking about uh, adaptive reuse everywhere. It's not really just, it's not really just because of preservation of heritage or right. uh, construction costs. It's because uh, really uh, it's not fully tenable. So of course, there are some mitigating factors, new technologies uh, that are not concrete to consume less carbon. I wonder then, as you say, right, that the role is evolving so fast and that the challenges and the briefs given to you are laced with so many external and internal changing requirements. I wonder whether the tools that are being used and aided by the architects have also evolved to support these changing requirements, right? So I guess the broader question is technology at the moment, is it an asset or liability to the profession? So I think uh, there there are many, many uh, levels of things to unpack there, really. Um, The first thing is that the the role itself is actually pretty constant. It's quite mandated, really. It's a legacy profession and there are a whole set of responsibilities, not just to the client, but also to the state, you know, which are, you know, which are determined in the various acts and regulations that the architect has to, you know, uh, submit to. So I think a lot of that is not going to change uh, over the course of, uh, I don't know, an eternity, right? Um, and your earlier comment about um, technology itself, technology happens in so many realms that I need to sort of like divide them up properly, right? So a generation past, we were talking about technologies that create new forms, regardless of how things were made on site, uh, how buildings were built. People like Frank Gehry used NASA technology, Katia, to uh, make his uh, Guggenheim Museum Bilbao. Over time, technology replaced a certain sort of activities that were that were um, sort of analog, but in, in concept, they remained the same. So drafting drawings, uh, you know, on an X-axis and Y-axis, uh, you know, you're just drawing a flat drawing. That took place on computer, but it was actually a conceptual replacement of the original. And then over time, then we start to use more and more applications, uh, most particularly is building information modeling. Just the idea that you're no longer drawing drawings to abstractly describe buildings, but you're making an entire model uh, across the chain of across the chain of other consultants that, and that model simulates a lot of situation of what will happen on site in terms of how it's going to be built structurally what its plan is and it generates all the drawings that you need and ideally so in the old days if you were to build you would discover that your mechanical clash with the structural uh, on site during construction and then you would rush to firefight it and the idea now is that if you are clashing identifying those issues earlier then you would avoid a later clash so uh, so I have to correct this I, um, this misnomer where people think that technology is a productivity unlocker once you have this magical uh, sort of elixir you can like just suddenly be much more uh, productive no it actually surfaces the same problems and it requires yep. the same uh, human tension uh, effort and tension to really resolve and really upfront sometimes um, so but it is an augmenting to uh, to a certain degree um, and increasingly of course technology the use of applications itself uh, or the reliance on professional application means the costs are increasing because software have all uh, gone on a subscription model. No one is on a sort of like yeah. amenable license and, and they just adjust every uh, everything. So they are, it, it, there's a kind of ransom to uh, professions that are not really earning a lot of money. So there's one realm of technology, applications, which can unlock productivity increases, but depending on how extensively utilized and shared and integrated they are. And then there is this last realm of technology, which is construction technology itself, uh, which is new ways of constructing buildings. In Singapore, there's a huge movement or at least like government push uh, and through regulatory requirements about um, things like prefabrication, your Lego block uh, apartments that are that are sort of like um, fabricated somewhere else and then assembled on site to um, 
new nascent technologies like cross-laminated timber that ideally consume less carbon, but at the same time, because they are so nascent, they are not cost-effective yet, and whether we can build a whole ecology of uh, producers and knowledge professionals so that their widespread adoption is affordable, that uh, remains to be seen. I think actually the most impactful one with the huge, highest learning curve, but also highest potential for transformation if we all get aligned uh, is in the realm of construction technology. Mm. We'll have more with Ron after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And I have with me Ronald Lim, co-chief editor of the Singapore Architect Magazine and honorary secretary of the Royal Institute of British Architects of the Singapore chapter. And he's also a practicing architect. And so, Ron, just taking a step back, you also lecturer. You teach uh, incoming students about the profession of architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at their motivations, you know, how different are the motivations and intentions of students, you know, when they pursue architecture as a degree? Because I'm going to throw these statistics to you, statistics to you, right? 7% of graduates only want to stay in this profession. Isn't that demotivating? So the, the 7% of graduates are recent graduates. So that's a more a professional issue. I, I'll, I'll address that question later. And then I'll talk about students first because the students are still innocent uh, when they're in school. <laughs> they, they come in all shades sizes, you know, and, and they are all, they are young, they are, um, they are excited, they are idealistic, but not all of them knew that architecture was for them. And, and some of them are naturals. So architecture yeah. school itself has a very strong set of rituals. It demands a huge time commitment and that, you know, it's not like in design studio, it's not like you can follow a formula and work towards an A, the way you can work towards an A on the exam. And then people get a little dejected. So I think what I usually tell them is that um, the skills you learn, the design thinking skills you learn in like, no, there are no 10 similar solutions to the same problem. Even for you to define the problem and frame the problem in the correct way itself is quite a hard skill. And at the end of 13 weeks through an iterative committed exercise, develop this concept until it addresses a multiple range of issues as what you set out for that allow you to discover something and unlock something uh, about what design uh, can be is a, a skill set that not many people actually or a kind of training that not many people go through in school because in school well you, you write papers you address like much drier questions and problem solving yeah, right? more black and white yeah there's no black and white and you have to operate under stress uh, you have to pull things together in a range and then mm. you just be there so ultimately that sort of design thinking is an asset regardless of where they go to um, architecture may be for them may not be them but you know you go to you know even Nike uh, hires architecture to design shoes. Yes, for sure. I mean, this concept of design thinking uh, is permeating across corporate world, right? Everyone's very excited yeah. about the application of that skill. And, and for us, it's been forever. We don't call it design thinking, right? You know, so, uh, and, and much more rigorously even. So there's that. So, I, but I need to come back to that 7% question that you mentioned because it's just a, it's just such a hot topic right now and then yeah. when it came out really, you know, there were there were different opinions. There were people who were against it and there were people who were for it uh, being talked about. But I need to place it in context, really, which is that this is not localized phenomenon. At the end of last year, uh, there was an uh, article in the New York Times that said that architects there were among the first white-collar professionals who wanted to unionize. That's their response over there. Over here, what's happening also is that there's the first question, is it is it an issue of oversupply of architects and under shortage of demand? And it cannot be because we've got a 15-year time frame for, it takes 15 years to train an architect fully uh, to have the whole range of- 15 years? Including schooling for, wow. for the comprehensive uh, architect training. So it's a very highly specialized skill. 
But what happens is that it's a continuous training. It's not, not unlike lawyers. So what you happen is that in the in the range of boom and bust cycles, right? So in year X, we get a recession. And then year X plus six, which is a boom time and you need architects with six-year experience, then you don't have enough of those. And there are those boom and bust cycles. But ultimately, it's not a question of lack of demand or oversupply because in Singapore, we've got about $27 billion of construction annually. You subtract from uh, infrastructure and everything, there should be more than enough to go around. But I think the issue is that in a time dimension, I take a step further to step back. You know, in 2004, roughly, was when uh, the Competition Act went into force uh, in many places, right? In Singapore, definitely Malaysia has its Competition Act too uh, in the US and the UK. I think, I'm not sure about the, the case in Malaysia because you guys have it, have the architect scale fee signed into the Architects Act. But at least over here, shortly after um, the Competition Act came in and professions were not allowed to set guideline charges or fees, then doctors and lawyers' fees rose significantly, but architects' fees depressed. Well, my personal diagnosis, I'm not sure it's uh, going to be a thorough and complete diagnosis, is that because in the life cycle of a project, uh, it takes anywhere, a, a large project can take seven to 10 years, a small project can take oh, two to three years, uh, and the scope is variable. Yep. The scope is variable, the work in co- involved is variable, and the cost increases. But architects are increasingly placed under a kind of duress to name fees up front, especially for a public tender, sometimes even lump sum fees. Uh, and just the work involved in doing all the resource uh, homework and calculation on what it takes to service this project uh, is both a very complex exercise or if they did it, they'll be way off the other tenders anyway. And there's an instinct that I need to undercut my fees just to have a chance at getting the job. And that behavioral instinct has really pushed fees down and consequently just led to under-resourcing on projects and salaries not being adjusted. Which then triggers a question in my mind uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, for a fledgling architect, is it easier to just stay within a larger network firm as opposed to going out on your own? It sounds very hard, right? The environment out there for going it alone seems very difficult. It doesn't encourage entrepreneurship in this kind of regulatory environments that you you talk about. No, well, I, I think there are different types of architects right out there and there are different types of firms also so uh, it really depends on the individual architect's motivation some uh, some really enjoy uh, complexity if you enjoy complexity and you enjoy uh, sort of working on one billion dollar resort uh, integrated resort then you know uh, you are much better off being in a large firm where you get to work with very sophisticated consultants or on large projects uh, but not being involved in design right if you've got um, some very strong personal design aspiration or vision that the firm that you work for does not accompany then, you know, sometimes coming out is the only way for people to find um, their own voices. Different people have different uh, yeah. ways. A lot of, uh, perversely also, some of the uh, architects who have come out of their own, I've met, uh, have come out on their own because they know that if they stay as employees, their salaries don't really adjust because you're not privy to your firm's financials very often, right? So if you come out and set up your own, at least you get the partner share of the, <laughs> the fees. So it's not it's not a straight up answer. It's just too diverse, really. One thing that we talk about in terms of the professional architect is we know the names Zahadid. Santiago Calatrava, the likes of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, these architects are, you know, celebrated, they're idolized. But do you think we've hit peak of celebrity architects or are we seeing just the start of it? So I think, uh, thanks for asking this question really, uh, because it's uh, it points to one aspect of architectural culture, that global architectural culture that really is changing. Um, so I think the what we see about in this uh, celebrity architects really is the byproduct maybe uh, prior to the global financial crisis uh, of about in 1997 was when the Guggenheim Bilbao was built by Frank Gehry, the American architect, and suddenly everyone around the world wanted uh, an iconic piece of architecture. 
either for uh, sort of city generation, but also uh, for vanity projects. And we, we were flush with cash, right? Uh, the whole world was awash with cash for these kinds of vanity projects. And that's how the cult of architecture as a sort of uh, vanity artistic exercise came about. Mm. I think in a good way for the profession, the global financial crisis really changed that turn. And that suddenly it was uh, generally accepted that architect, uh, it was a bit unconscionable to work on these kinds of high profile architecture where architecture is couture, um, you know. And so I think in the last few years, you've started to see that Pritzker has changed um, the kinds of recipients who, who it decides to award the Pritzker Prize to already. You see a general shift from architecture as an artistic practice to architecture as an ethical practice. So for example, this year, Francisco Diabedo Pere, uh, an African architect, won it and a lot for his very modest, humble, but well-designed sort of community buildings and villages in, in Africa, for example. Or uh, maybe last year, we had La Caton and Versailles, which is a French firm that proposes design but not tearing things down, but actually very incrementally adjusting things to improve qualities of lives. So I think there is a change towards a, a, an approach to design that ought to be more values-based, that uses less resources, that really does not call attention to itself, that enhances some kind of narcissistic vanity. Mm. Maybe a bit harsh on that, but uh, because I think I, I, a lot of these architects, I do admire their artistic accomplishments, don't get me wrong, but I think it's just, it's just a very different culture and economy and that we can achieve a lot more on the resources that they're buildings like you know consume you know yeah this is very interesting i wonder then going forward as you as you rightly point out that that subtle but seismic shift from artistic value to ethical principles should perhaps define the role of the architect in the future do you think you know in many people's minds then it's less about the commercial and the lucrative parts of this business as opposed to making a difference and impact to society they're not opposing and actually this whole social and ethical mission is something that has been that has been deeply embedded in the architectural profession uh, at least since uh, the onset of the modern movement. So in the 1930s, you know, when um, buildings had to suddenly be done in the machine age, but that's because we're talking about an era of social emancipation and modernity. And that's when people uh, really invested in building schools, mm. hospitals, everything else. This, this was part of the original social mission. If you go back both in Singapore and Malaysia, our first generation of architects had very strong sense of a mission that whatever they were doing were meant to serve society itself. I suspect that uh, com- commercialization came about because of, well, maybe the, the in, in implant of like neoliberal economy um, and also because you just need everyone needs to feed themselves right you know in the old days architecture was a gentleman's profession but today of course there are you unless you're extremely well connected patron architects or whoever then everyone needs to find their way to survive and that's why they be commercialized it's not that commercialization is bad it's that commercialization has led to certain in, in when practice unthoughtfully can lead to a certain banalization you know it becomes much more banal yeah. uh, the kind of things that they design and less meaningful uh, when the same resources the same effort and the same thoughtfulness can you know uh, create a much better route I don't see it uh, as a if or I mean either or kind of a thing I don't and. see and you know um, the arch- architects who are committed to social agenda need to figure and need to learn business skills also like more, base, more baseline business skills to make it work for themselves Thanks a lot Ron On today's Property Show I had the privilege of speaking to Ronald Lim Co-Chief Editor of the Singapore Architect Magazine and Honorary Secretary Royal Institute of British Architects Singapore chapter on the evolving architecture profession. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. 
BFM 89.9, The Business Station.